So as you all know, um, or some of you are new, you may not know, this almost a year now, or maybe even more, we've been going through something called the Vitality Pathway, in which Cornerstone has been in this uh, season of mapping out what our next five and ten years looks like. And so as Danny mentioned during the announcements and as he asked you to pray for us later in our staff leadership retreat that we're going to have right after service today, is we're honing our mission statement and our vision, and it's going to be edited somewhat so that we kind of lay out the, the future. And as, you know, we as a group and myself, I've been, you know, like helping out in this process, I've gone to, I've come, I've grown to learn more and more how important a mission statement is. Because as Let's say Cornerstone as an example. As people go on our website, as people come new to Boston or looking for a church for the first time, you look at the mission and vision to figure out what is this church about, what do they care about, what are they trying to do, and do I care about that? Do I want to align myself myself with what they are about? And so my train of thought continued to roll as I realized, well, there's actually a lot of organizations that I spend a lot of my time and energy and, frankly, my money on And I don't even know what their mission is at all. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. I don't know what they care about. But I'm helping them accomplish what I don't know what they care about. And so I assume that's the same case for many of you. We put a lot of our time, uh, we wear a lot of things or our energy, the things that we talk about, uh, the money that we give goes to a lot of organizations that we may not even know what their mission really is. And so I have a few examples that I want to go through, and I'm just going to read their mission statement. Quality is our highest priority. It's in everything we do from our design, always starting with the finest materials and production at the world's most renowned factories where much of the work is done by hand to our personalized service. Apple designs Macs, the best personal computers in the world, along with OSX, iLife, iWork, and professional software, Apple leads the digital music revolution with its iPods and iTunes online store, and Apple has reinvented the mobile phone with this revolutionary iPhone and app store, and it's defining the future of mobile media. To provide our fans, communities, and partners the highest quality sports and entertainment in the world, and to do so in a way that is consistent with our values. To make and serve the freshest, most delicious coffee, and donuts quickly and courteously in modern, well-merchandised stores. So the coffee snob in me wants to comment about this, but I will move on. So I chose these specific examples because I assume that by the time that we die, most of us will have spent a lot of money. Uh, A lot of us would be almost walking advertisements for these companies. A lot of us will sit on a couch together every single Sunday, and we're counting down the weeks till it gets there, cheering and celebrating a particular organization. And a lot of us use uh, our computers or our phones and our our, uh, tablets and have been putting a lot of money and support into these mission statements coming to life. Now, I'm not saying that that's wrong. Okay? There's nothing wrong with having a computer, buying a nice coffee, and uh, watching a football game or buying tickets to a football game. But the question that with this whole mission statement that I, I want to ask all of us is if we were to be able to somehow chart and maybe even visually see proportionally how much our energy and our time and our efforts are divvied up in different organizations, in different causes, in different uh, groups or companies or businesses, would it reflect what our hearts really care about most? If we were to lay it all out, 
Would somebody who doesn't know you be able to see your, yourself on paper and be like, oh, this is the mission statement that this person cares about the most? Would it match? Or if we were to lay it out, would it just talk about how, what we, would it look like what we care about most is nice clothing or, or Lexuses and luxury cars or expensive Canada goose jackets or gray goose for that matter? And I don't even want to know what the mission statement of gray goose is. Or would it reflect that what you care about most, the mission statement that you want to see come to fulfillment the most, is the mission of God? And if I have permission to put the mission of God in a nutshell, the one word that I can think of is restoration. The mission of God is to take everything that sin has broken and the fallenness of creation and to put it back into the way that it was in Eden, to make it right again, the way that he created it, the way he intended it to be That's what God's mission is. That's what he's doing in this world, is to restore everything back to the perfection that he intended it to be. So his his mission is to take sinners who are enemies with God and transform them into beloved children. His mission is to restore and reconcile relationships, to increase forgiveness in this world, to control anger, to rid us from lust and committing adultery, to restore the marriage relationship and the beautiful bonds in marriage, to make us truth-tellers who are honest and who stick with our oaths, to make us people who do not retaliate and people who love even our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I hope all these things sound familiar. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's everything that we talked about in these past Sundays in the two months. See, do you notice that if we start listening, if we start obeying and, and abiding by the Sermon on the Mount, what happens God's mission starts to take, it starts to get fulfilled. It starts to take form. Today, what we're going to be talking about and one other thread of what happens when God's mission starts to take form is that suffering people start getting helped. That the population, if there are 100 needy people in the world, that number starts to decrease. If we are really bought into the mission of God, then we're going to give to the poor that people who are in pain will start to have their pain alleviated by the people who follow Jesus Christ. So let's read this text. We're going to start in chapter 6, and we're going to be reading just a few verses, or just four verses, verses 1 through 4. Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, oops, sorry, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh... Just going back and rewinding a little bit, verse 1 I wanted to highlight real quickly. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So verse 1 is going to actually act as a heading uh, statement for the next three sermons. So in the beginning of chapter 6 in Matthew, Matthew talks about three of our religious duties. So today, almsgiving or giving to the poor. Uh, Then he's going to talk about prayer. And then he's going to talk about fasting. And of these three things, of these three religious duties, uh, Jesus is talking about how they're meant to not be done to parade yourself and to grab attention from others. 
So verse 1 is kind of the heading for not only today, but for the next two sermons that Pastor Bill is going to be preaching on prayer and on fasting. And so let's look into more specifically what we're talking about today. So when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So the major point is, is fairly simple. It, we can read it once and we understand, okay, this is what Jesus' point is. He's saying, don't give to the poor to bring praise to yourself. That disciples of Jesus, we're not in this game of almsgiving, of charity, of sacrifice for human adoration, admiration. So the act of giving, it's meant to be just between you and God, not between you and onlookers or the public eye or perception. So he, uses, he even uses over-the-top language, right? He says this is so important that your left hand shouldn't even know what your right hand is doing. Of course, he's, he's speaking in exaggeration or with hyperbole, but the point is pretty simple and pretty clear. Give secretly. Don't do it to gain praise or respect or to be liked or admired by other people. Essentially, this passage in a nutshell, and even the next two, it's a call for authenticity in our religion, authenticity in our following Jesus, which is proven when done behind closed doors, when you're in private, when no one's looking or no one sees. So, you know, like the Bible is awesome in that you can read the same passage a million times and always learn something different. And as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, I mean, I have a lot of messed up things about me. I have a lot of sins, but I'm not really like a trumpet sounder, right? And so I'm typing and I'm like, what kind of illustration can I come up with? And it's like zap, like God's like, oh yeah, like I'll show you. And immediately in my mind, I started, I've never thought of this before. And I realized that I am a trumpet sounder. I don't know where it comes for you. But for me, it happens in front of a tip jar. So you go to a coffee shop, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, wherever, and there's a tip jar. And something that I realized about myself, and I hope somebody in the room can feel me because then I'm going to feel really horrible. I secretly, and now it's not a secret, want the person to watch me drop the coins. So you know what happens very often is they'll hand you their change, and this is only at cash-only places because I only use credit. Only use credit, right? Uh, cash only. And what they do is they give you your dollar and 13 cents. And then they walk around, turn around to get your coffee. And you've already dropped the tip in by then. And then when they come back, they haven't seen it to tell you thank you for giving you them a tip. And so for me, I trumpet sound in that if you don't see me, then I hope that the coins make lots of rattle. So I drop it from high up and clink, 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 clink. Oh, thank you. I'm like, oh, no problem, you know? Uh, the thing is, what's so twisted about this, I'm so shame, I'm, see, I'm, I'm being vulnerable before you. I want to be thanked for my tip, but if it's coins, I'm not even being generous. It's like 13 cents. And when they don't say thank you, how do I feel? Maybe you were late. Oh, ungrateful, right? Like, give me my 13 cents back. Like, I didn't even tip them. That's not a tip. That's me inconvenient or like dumping my inconvenience in a jar. Because if you give cash, you're generous, but then it's too quiet and they won't hear it and they won't thank you, right? This isn't almsgiving. I'm not, this isn't an example in which I'm giving to the poor, which is what the passage is about. But I realized in preparing this message that I have every capacity to want praise from people in watching what I'm doing. 
I can't even be, that's not generosity, is it? So this is what the passage is about. Don't uh, trumpet yourself when you're giving to the poor, when you're following God, because we twist it in a way, don't we? Because what I really want is human praise or respect or people to think, wow, what a great person. And the means of which I'm getting to that uh, goal is through obedience to God. But then, then we rewind. That's not obedience at all. That's manipulation. I'm, I can find a way in my flesh to manipulate the Bible to make myself look better. So am I authentic? That's going to happen when done in privacy, when nobody is looking. Because our flesh can easily lie to us and say, you know what's worth it in following the Bible? Our flesh will lie and say, getting admiration. And you know what the flip side is that this passage says is eternal reward. Isn't that silly? That we trade this blessing, this great reward that Jesus says that we will receive, and I exchange that ticket so that a a barista can say, oh, thanks, that was nice of you. It's just crazy how much our flesh can just send us in all these crazy directions. So what this passage is about for today is about an inner authenticity about following Jesus that comes out when we give to the poor in privacy. When nobody's looking, when we're not seeking praise, we're not trying to get people to like us or respect us or think we're so generous, when it's just between me and God and whoever is going to be the blessing and the recipient of it later. If... Uh, according to, you know, the, the books that I read in seminary and uh, the preaching classes that I took, I could stop there. What I did was read the passage to you. We went over verse 1 through 4. I explained it and told you the main point, and let's pray. And as I was typing this up this week at my desk, I, I had a very sobering thought that Actually, frankly, it laid pretty heavy on, on my heart. And that doesn't always happen. Like, you know, a lot of times, like, sermon writing is really joy-giving, but I actually felt really heavy because I thought that if I stopped there, only some people in this room have heard a sermon that applies to their life. Because the text says, when you give, don't trumpet sound. And you can only trumpet sound or disobey this command when you give. And while I'm not God and I cannot see into everybody's soul like laser, I'm very confident that not all of us give. So we can't even disobey the commandment if we're not giving to begin with. And that laid heavy on my heart because not all of us are giving. Not all of us are participating in accomplishing God's mission statement and taking the suffering world and alleviating that suffering by what we can give in our resources. So I continue. There's something uh, some of you may have in college or actually probably not high school, probably just in college or maybe grad school, taking uh, adolescent, or not adolescent, childhood 
or developmental psychology. I was a psych major, so I took a bunch of psych classes when I was in college. And there's this thing called object permanence. And many of you may have heard it. Family Guy even did like a funny joke on it. And it's like, you know, somewhat of a well-known thing. You don't have to be a PhD in psychology to know or have heard of object permanence. But if you haven't, it's, it's kind of in the name. So they, uh, psychologists say that somewhere under the age of two, that babies do not have object permanence. Meaning, if an object is not physically seen in front of them with their eyes, that when taken away, it's not that it's just moved, but that it ceases to exist. So there's a lot of experiments done, and as they get older over time, you start to know, because the common experiment is to take a toy, shake it and get their attention, and then put it under a blanket, or put it behind their back, or put it under a, oops, I'm going to rip this off my ear, or put it under a pillow, um, and then eventually as they get object permanence, when it goes under the blanket, they lift up the blanket and they grab the toy. But I want to show a video. Uh, unfortunately, the audio didn't transfer over, so just pretend that a mom is like, you know, being all googly with her, her kid. Uh, and this is just an example of when they do not have object permanence. So she's like, look at the ball, look at the ball. She covers it, and look at his eyes. What the? <laughs> what is this sorcery? Look at the ball. Yay. What the? <laughs> okay, that's good enough. So this is object permanence. And, and so basically, again, it, this is like the literal, almost the literal, uh, most literal way to say out of sight, out of mind. It's not that it was just moved or out of place or I don't know where to find it. It's like it doesn't exist anymore. I think as Christians, we have a sort of object permanence lack. Because if you will, uh, like there, let's say social media or the news or even the church acts as our, as our ball. So police shootings happen and hashtag Black Lives Matter happens and it's shaken in front of us, and we're like, oh, yeah, I, I'm so concerned about systematic racism, and I want to do my part in that. I can't believe I'm going to share, I'm going to tweet about it. If there's a town hall meeting, I'm going to attend. Or, you know, the news is like, hey, look at the toy, look at the toy. ISIS just did something in France, and then Paris, and, and like in, in, the, in the airport in Turkey, and we're all, it's grabbed their attention, it's like, and we're drawn to it, and it's like, it's like the bug going to the blue light, and we have this attention, we like, we tweet about it, we'll put up those, you know, little ribbons with a different color of the flags, and we're so concerned, or the church, we act as a rattle. In the lobby, we set up hot dogs and say, when you buy a hot dog, please donate generously because this is going to support our Habitat for Humanity Connecticut team. And we're like, oh, of course. Here, I'll buy a 50-cent hot dog for you for $20 and take it. And we shake, 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 and then it's slipped away or put under the pillow and we're done. It doesn't exist. I'm convinced that until our needy help, alleviating suffering, concern for the poor, object permanence develops that will always somewhat be stunted in our following Jesus. 
I feel so strongly about that. And, and here's the, let, me, let me give you my argument as to why I, I really think it's, I could confidently say stunted growth. Because firstly, the greatest commandment that most of us know is to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves, and it's combined. And I wonder, how do we accomplish the greatest commandment if we do not care about the suffering neighbor around us while we live in lavish comfort? In 1 John 3.17, it's a famous verse. John writes, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a sobering verse, but it's true, right? When we live in lavish comfort and our neighbors suffer, how can we be, accompli- how can we be growing in getting the greatest commandment in our following Jesus down? And secondly, why I'm so convinced that it will stunt our growth as Christians is because money has such a powerful way of deeply rooting and and burrowing into our hearts as an idol. And when idols are there, until they get pushed out, we don't really experience the fullness of relationship and joy of walking with Jesus because the idol gets in the way. We can experience it in part, of course, because all of us, until we die, we're going to have some sort of idols, but this is a big one, that until we push it out, it's going to not give us the whole picture. And so I'm so convinced that until we get to the two-year-old stage, who, when the ball is placed under the blanket or the pillow, I can pick it up and see it's actually it's still there. And when that ball is rep- representing our need to give to the poor, we'll always remain infants. When applying this text, I think it addresses two types of people. Jesus says, when you give, do it in this way. And so speaking to some of us who do give regularly, and one of the things that I'm so, let me, let me tell you, so if, I just sound like Charles Barkley. Um, the, fi- the first five, four, year, four or five years or so, my job at Cornerstone was to be the pastor of Compassion, Mercy, Justice Ministry. And so in secret, I know there are many of you, and I can name you, of how much money you have given away. And I wish that I had permission to tell everybody. You know that John Doe gave this much, and I've done Lazarus classes with some of you. There are some of you who are so generous that you have made my first five years in ministry like, oh my goodness, what a joy. And for those of you who are in that camp who are giving regularly, it does speak to us. It says, when you give, so let's do it. it. It just tells us how to do it, right? And even in that same statement, when you give, it speaks to those of us who are not giving regularly in that it's saying it shouldn't be an if anymore for me. It should be when. So in an application, I'm going to address both of these groups. So those who are regularly giving first, let's obey the main gist of this passage. Practice your giving in secret and give to honor God not to receive from man. So protect that. Let's make sure that it's not about what others see and what they say about us, but let's do it. It's just between me and God. It's about my obedience, and it's about the Father. And I'd like for those of you who are giving regularly to have a second um, a point to take home today. Reexamine your giving. Give out of an abundance, not out of leftovers. So as you go home, for those of you who have regularly been given, giving, uh, just a few questions. When was the last time you thought about that number or the means and thought, oh, like, could I do better? 
uh, that's something to think about. Have you forgotten about it? That, that's something to think about. Has it become, has it become robotic to you? Um, another good question to those of you who are regularly giving, have you gotten a raise or a promotion since the last time you settled on those numbers? And do you have a little bit of a wiggle room to give more? Does it affect your lifestyle or does it cost you at nothing? Could you, could you completely forget about it and it doesn't matter? And then maybe that is good reason if you can say yes to any of those questions to re-examine and to go through your budget again. Go on to your statements. If you're married, to talk to your spouse. Like, oh, where can we wiggle a little bit more? And just talk about it and re-examine. And let's continue to, sh- to, to sharpen and to hone what you're already doing. If you're not giving at all or giving uh, regularly, let me, let me pause for both groups as an aside. Let's be really clear that Biblical generosity does not, and giving, when I say giving and generous, I'm not talking about we're at Lay's and, oh, no, no, I got it. Like, I got you, bro. Or Christmas comes around and I'm really generous at sending gifts and I'm supporting my parents and, and like, oh, like, yeah, like Froyo or like the college student, like they don't have a job and I'm a young adult and don't worry, I got your Froyo. Like, this isn't, this is not biblical generosity we're talking about. This isn't the, the giving that I'm talking about. We're talking about people who cannot help themselves people who are suffering, people who are in need of somebody in a place of privilege to bring them out of that, okay? So just, just to make that clear. So for those of us who aren't giving regularly, and, and this isn't just, and, and regularly does not mean when the holidays come around, like every Christmas I give or every donation. I'm not talking about the rattle. When that happens, you empty your pockets. I'm talking about in your day-to-day, in your month-to-month, your week-to-week, you choose out of your own thoughts, out of your own following Jesus to go on the website, to write the check. This needs to become permanent. Start a plan that will get, create intentionality and permanence in your giving. If we continue to narrowly define Christian walk as church attendance, prayer, the occasional morning QT, there will always be a major gap and hole missing in our faith. And I hope that does not become burdensome to you, but I hope that you love that idea and you love that standard. Because what if God didn't command that? Don't you love a God who says to his people, you must give to people. You must uh, end human pain. I hope you love that. I hope you love that pressure. Let's make that a permanent part of our lives. For those of you who struggle with this and aren't giving and I'm calling you to be intentional and make some sort of permanent thing, this is hard for you, right? And that's fine. But here's a few suggestions. Start with a number that you can give away monthly, 20 bucks a month, whatever. Just decide on it and at the end of every month, just give it away or set it aside so you can give it away. Another method, if it helps with regularity, is to give a percentage of your check Say, every time my employer cuts me my check or every two weeks or every time a direct deposit comes in, 3%, 7%, 16%, it's going away. Or even easier, take advantage of technology. How many organizations now have a website? We will auto-debit. Just set it up. Auto-debit, $2, click, and then it's going to keep going, 2 bucks every time that you hit it on the recurring. By the way, when I say $2, I'm not just using a stupid number. 
If $2 is really what it takes to make a permanent thing in your life, then praise God for those $2. There is no number too small to start this practice of your walking with Jesus. It's not something to be embarrassed about. I'm not using extreme language. If you wrestle with this, put $1 and click the auto-draft button just so we can get on this road of permanence. A dream that I have for Cornerstone is if I were to be able to stand up here and say every single person at Cornerstone is somewhat involved in giving to the poor. Don't you want to be a part of a church like that? That literally changes the world by our existence. That as long as there's a bunch of people who meet in the Benjamin Franklin on Sunday mornings, continues to meet there, things start getting better. That's going to take permanence in our walk. And for those of us who have already gotten that permanence, it's going to take a re-examining and a continuing to challenge ourselves. There are a few topics. Uh, trust me, I know. Uh, I know that I'm the one speaking, but I know how it feels. There are a few topics uh, like giving away money that make us cringe and uncomfortable in our seats. There are a few things that make us think, oh my goodness, that's so hard. Following God is so hard. Obeying the Bible is so hard. And let me say, let me just, I don't know if anybody's thinking this. Let me make it clear that if it feels really hard for you, it doesn't mean you're a bad person or a bad Christian or that you're messed up. So let's not beat ourselves up for this. Let's just normalize that. It's hard for all of us. It's hard. And of course it's going to be hard. Think about it. We revolve our, our lives around it. We go to high school or grade school and get the best score on our SRT, SATs to get to the best school, to get the best job. Why? To make the least money? No, to make the most. And when you get that job, you work hard or you apply for different ones so that you get a promotion, not so that you get demoted. Our, the most of our hours of our day are driven to success that is worldly to get more money. So when somebody says, give that away, of course it's going to be difficult. So let's not beat ourselves up. It's going to be hard, but let's ask for transformative power in the way that we see our lives. The reason why it's so hard is because when we live our lives in this way, money is a resource. It's good. Buys us groceries, pays the rent. That's good. But it changes from resource into treasure into security, into my happiness, into my deepest desires and wants. And when somebody says, comes up on a Sunday and says, give your treasure away, you say no. So what we got to do is uproot the treasure. It's when Jesus and everything that Christ is and all that he stands for and everything that he's done for us takes that place as the only treasure in your heart as our security, as our joy, as our hope, as the thing that you want the most, then money just becomes a resource. And when somebody says, give it away, you say, okay, what's the cause for? We got to make Christ Jesus the treasure of our hearts and dwell in the good news that Jesus Christ, more than any dollar amount, satisfies us beyond what we can imagine. Something that I've been telling myself this week, and even over the weeks, I'm, I'm currently leading a Lazarus group right now. 
is without Christ in my life, I could have all the world's money and that would all be worthless. Isn't that true? Would you agree with me that you could have all the money in the world, but if you did not have Christ, that your life would be meaningless? Doesn't that prove to all of us that he is the only treasure? He is the greatest thing that we need. And so, friends, let's, in our application, in doing these exercises, the main point through these things is to put Christ at the center center of our hearts to declare that he is the only thing that I treasure and to uproot the idol of money and to push it out so that we can, we can, it's, it's literally a possible thing for every single person at Cornerstone to be a participant in alleviating suffering in the world because we love Christ, because he is our treasure, because money is merely a paper resource. So can we commit to that together? Let's place Christ as a treasure. Let's start permanence and intentionality in our giving. Let's not trumpet sound when we give, and let's re-examine what we're giving. God, we ask that you would hear our prayers, and we know that you do, and we just, just, just pray that. Like, Lord, would you listen to and, and, and just see fulfillment in all the things that we're asking, uh, especially if, if it's right with you, if, if our hearts are in the right place. Um, but I can't imagine in that prayer that it wouldn't be that we ask that you would be our only treasure. Father, would your hand go and just take, just uproot all the different idols that are in our hearts that are, that are taking your spot and be our only treasure, be our only hope, our only sense of security, our only sense of joy and pleasure, our only want, our only desire, our only hunger, our only need. Would it all, all those things be wrapped up in you and you alone? God, I have to confess that I, I guess as I said that I, I, I wish that Cornerstone would be the church that everybody gives. I, I lack faith in that. Forgive me for lacking faith because all things are possible in your name. And I do believe now as you minister to me and as you show me, we can be that church. We can be that congregation. We can be that generation. We can be that people group. We can be that group of Christians who all love Jesus and our neighbor so much that all of us abundantly, joyfully, permanently, intentionally give to suffering people who care not only when the news and Twitter tells us to, but because our hearts beat in that way. We care about the pain in this world and we want to do everything that we can to help. Make us that church. And God, I close in the way that we began this prayer in thanksgiving. Thank you that we don't have to worry about what we're going to eat. Thank you that we don't have to worry about whether we'll have heat in the winter or shelter. Thank you that we have an education, that we have relationships, that whether we have loans and we have very little money and maybe a part-time job or we have hundreds and thousands of dollars and anywhere in between, thank you that we have a dollar. Thank you that we have clean water. 
And above all these things, thank you that we can say that we're part of your family because of your great and rich mercy unto us. That although we ourselves are an enemy, that you call us child because of the, because of the work of your son. And God, we could have been born into a difficult situation. I could, have, I could be on the streets right now, but for some reason you chose to give me what I have. And if you have put me in this place, in us, in this place of privilege, let us not turn a blind eye to those who are in need. And out of our privilege, let us go and help. Be our treasure. And in treasuring you, be the light of this world that goes to fulfill the mission of God to restore. And in your work of restoration, we want to be the instruments used in this world, God. Use me. Use us. Use Cornerstone. So again, we commit our lives to you and to you alone. Use us as your will uh, and as you purpose. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.